Los Angeles. You're now tuned into Lawson Girl Speaks with award-winning journalist and South Central native Lawson Girl. This is a safe space. Yeah! Celebrating authentic black expression. Where Slauson Girl dives deep into Los Angeles history. Politics and news. <laughs> While discussing culture, race, and identity with carefully curated guests to keep you open-minded in today's society. No cap. Follow Slauson Girl on all social media platforms and stream Slauson Girl Speaks on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You don't want to miss this. She can help you buy or sell your home A luxury or income property Agent Sunny is the one that you want to see Hi, I'm Sunny Jones, your community real estate partner Real estate ownership is key to building generational wealth And it matters who you work with whether you're buying or selling, I am here to help you win. Let's chat. You can find me at agentsunnyjones.com, Facebook, and Instagram, or by text 323-793-7651. If you need a home, call Sunny Jones. 323-793-7651. So when you need a home, call Sunny Jones. When you need a home, call Sunny we need to talk about the alarming levels of apathy surrounding the deaths of black women and girls in Los Angeles. The recent deaths of two models, Melissa Mooney and Nicole Coates, highlight that disturbing pattern of apathy within local law enforcement. Their deaths also shed light on broader issues affecting black women and girls in Los Angeles. The two models living in luxury downtown Los Angeles apartments were found deceased just two days apart. Despite the striking similarities in their sex, race, and location, the police have released minimal information and publicly denied any connection between the two cases. Melissa Mooney's sister, Jordan Pauline, expressed frustration over sporadic communication from the police, revealing that her sister was pregnant at the time of her death. She also says that the family do not believe that her pregnancy and her death are connected. These tragedies follow the widely publicized cases of Tiani Theus, a 16-year-old black girl whose body was discarded on the on-ramp of the 110 freeway in 2022 as well as Mikeyana Johnson, who went missing during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. A reward of over $120,000 for information was put up for Theus, although police have yet to release any details into her death or updates into her case. There was a study commissioned by council members Curran Price and Marquise Harris-Dawson last year, which revealed that Black women and girls are at a higher risk of victimization, yet their cases receive disproportionately less attention from law enforcement and the media. I caught up with Sakivu Hutchinson. She's the founder of the Women's Leadership Project. Also interviewed her before 
during the pandemic when Mikeyana Johnson went missing just to get her thoughts about violence impacting black women and girls in Los Angeles. She is a writer and again, founder of the Women's Leadership Project, which is a feminist mentoring and civic engagement program for Los Angeles students. She's also written widely about the Grim Sleeper, which was a serial killer in South Central. I encourage everybody to go and do your research on that story. So Sakivu, she says law enforcement continue to display high levels of disinterest when it comes to solving cases of African-American women. She also says that there's a lack of urgency among local representatives, including Mayor Karen Bass in addressing violence against black women and girls in Los Angeles. WLP finally secured a meeting with Councilman Harris Dawson's office, and they presented several proposals and initiatives, including repair zone funding to address anti-black racism, in addition to the need for several youth centers in South Los Angeles, with culturally responsive approaches, especially concerning LGBTQ youth. Hutchison expressed that the organization did not leave the meeting with the sense that meaningful steps will be taken to address these urgent issues. She also condemned the lack of coverage surrounding the deaths of the two models in downtown LA, labeling it as egregious apathy. She says urgent action is needed from local leaders to address the broader issue of violence against black women and girls in Los Angeles. We're being shut down, being ignored. So... We had a meeting finally uh, in person last week to address these issues, to specifically talk about the demands in our campaign letter that we developed um, a month and a half ago. And so those demands included trying to create youth centers and community centers in CD8, because CD8 has the largest African-American population in LA City. And yet when we drive through CD8, particularly High Park, which is where we're based, we don't see anything that's, that's culturally responsive, that is going to provide resources and safe spaces for our youth. There's just virtually nothing. When we go to the West Side, we see tons of facilities. We see teen centers. We see youth activities. We see after-school programs. So that was a primary item that we were advocating for we were also um, advocating for some kind of youth task force. Um, Standing for Black Girls has put together a youth task force, but we're very small. We've attempted to engage policymakers, but that's been piecemeal because, again, of the marginalization and the lack of accountability. So youth who were involved in the campaign were interested in seeing an entity created that could interface with the city and potentially the county on redressing these issues. Um, Another thing that was broached was the fact that there have been um, a lot of so-called dual arrests of African-American women violence victims when law enforcement is called that black women who are experiencing these atrocious rates of violence are then criminalized and subsequently uh, incarcerated because they're viewed as as criminals and and participating in, in the violence that they're being victimized by. So we want some type of redress of 
that regime of over-criminalization of, of black women victims. Um, another thing that we cited in the campaign letter was the fact that there is not intersectional reporting on violence victims. So there's not intersectional reporting in terms of those who are gender expansive, those who are queer identified, those who are trans, um, who are experiencing intimate partner violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, um, and in some instances, homicide, that that's not being tracked appropriately. So those were some of um, the key demands that we invoked in that campaign letter, again, in collaboration with high school and college youth who've been involved with the Standing for Black Girls Coalition. And how did the meeting go from your perspective with the councilman's office this week? I was not that encouraged with the response, simply because when we kept pressing about why it's taken us nearly three months to get this meeting. Actually, no, it has taken three months, not nearly three months, it's taken three months. When we pressed the office on that simple point, there was, there was no response. There's simply no sense of urgency at that office, within the city council at large, and unfortunately, not in the mayor's office. I mean, we had a meeting with the mayor's office that was on Zoom, and we were asking about funding, we were asking about participatory budgeting, we were asking about these so-called repair zones, which are supposed to redress um, systemic anti-Black racism you know, by providing community-based CBOs, uh, community-based organizations, with funds to develop initiatives that are going to provide resources and, and culturally responsive and, and culturally competent options for youth and, and other vulnerable members of our communities. And they weren't really able to provide any answers as, as to why the community's not being engaged in this process. Hmm. So we didn't come out of that meeting with a lot of concrete next steps other than the invitation to do programming at Station 54, which is the facility on Slauson. That's a, right. a recently renovated community center that folks can, can come and do programming in. Okay. So, I mean, we're definitely open to doing that, but that's just one drop in the bucket. Right. Okay. Were you familiar with the AFIBA Center that was there before? Yes. Yes, I was familiar with that and um, the conflicts that emerged around that. I know that those folks were displaced. Right. And that there was just a lot of community outcry to ensure that they were able to keep that space. Right. So, I mean, it just shows, again, the, all of the structural deficits around hypersegregation and anti-blackness and, and uh, quite frankly, contemporary uh, apartheid that bedevils our community. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the response that we got from the council members' deputies was that they're under siege, they're simply trying to, to keep their heads above water when it comes to ensuring that infrastructure is taken care of in CDA, like um, lights and fire services and, and other forms of maintenance and, and Wi-Fi. And granted, those things are vital, but our lives, and particularly the lives of youth, you know, who are dying at disproportionate rates from gun violence, committing suicide, uh, depressed, traumatized, don't have access to mental health care, 
don't have access to culturally competent therapists, which is something that we have agitated for. We actually piloted uh, two years ago, as you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just egregious that we're getting that kind of apathy. You mentioned the different points that you wanted the councilman's office to address. Um, but, you know, what would you like to see them do, you know, moving forward to keep the faith of, you know, local youth and organizations like yourself focusing on um, black women and girls in the community? Well, obviously, this is a, a long term given the, the so-called insurmountable odds and insurmountable barriers that they're citing exist. But we need at least three youth facilities that um, in CD8, because again, CD8 is the most impacted, highest population of African-American folks, visible youth facilities where youth can go for professional development, for job training, for mental health, for recreation, for prevention education, which is at the core of what the Women's Leadership Project and Standing for Black Girls does. We actually go into classrooms and, and work with youth on identifying what is sexual harassment, what is sexual violence, what is misogynoir, what is um, victim blaming and victim shaming. You know, how do those impact the lives of African-American girls and queer youth and other vulnerable youth? And what's the nexus there in terms of high rates of push out, high rates of criminalization, high rates of folks being sex trafficked and becoming unhoused? So to have a facility or facilities where that kind of content can be provided to youth on a sustainable and a a cohesive basis would really be vital because we have schools, but I mean, schools are not really providing the kind of accessible wraparound services um, that we need when it comes to prevention education in particular, prevention and intervention. And then one other point would be focus on these so-called repair zones and and why it is that that these zones have been created in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and uprising around defunding the police and the police state regime, and yet we can't gain access to these funds Mm -hmm. as small black women and girl-focused CBOs. Okay. Okay. And so um, recently there was reports of two black women that were found in downtown L.A. And I wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on that because I interviewed you before when Mikeyana Johnson was found, uh, went missing and then was found in 2020. And we talked again, you know, just a, a lot about the apathy around, you know, black women um, whether they're missing, whether, you know, they're, um, they come up dead and things like that. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the recent models. Um, and also one was a real estate agent. Um, you know, wh- what were your thoughts when you heard the news? Well, I thought it was atrocious. Um, the fact that you had these two young women who were murdered and there was very little press around it other than what the family generated with their press conference and and obviously folks like you you know who are in the community and unapologetically unapologetically black aligned trying to amplify the uh, the critical importance 
uh, bring attention to these homicides. And we know that had it been white women models who had been murdered this way, that there would have been tons of press. I mean, we've seen this time and again, locally and nationally. So I know that there, uh, again, are organizations that work on the epidemic of black femicide that are national. And it's just a tragedy that this keeps cropping up, that we have these high rates. We're 4.3% in the city of LA. We have black elected officials who passed resolutions, who passed motions. One was passed, as you know, um, over a year ago after the abduction and murder of Tiani Theus. And yet there are no action items. There are no action steps that these black elected officials feel um, obligated to follow up on with folks that are on the ground working. And so I know you mentioned, you know, the lack of coverage and also realize that too there wasn't any follow-up um other than the fact that the police came out like right after and said that they don't believe that the victims are connected you know right um mm-hmm. why do you think the police was were quick to come out with, and say that but then there was like no follow-up about you know what was going on yeah i mean i think again that, that it's symptomatic of what we've been talking about that they're, they're just is not going to be a groundswell of interest and exposure and accountability when it comes to black women's lives, period. And sometimes, unfortunately, that is reflected in our own community. Right. That the lives of of black women and girls, particularly if we're talking about what appears to be intimate partner violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, um, in short, so-called private violence, because I think that that's a misnomer because obviously so-called private violence has deep roots in other forms of public and community violence. But when it comes down to those forms of violence, that there unfortunately is going to be less emphasis Hmm. because this may very well be intra-racial. And so then you get into these questions of, well, did she bring it on herself? Was she in um, a relationship with someone that she shouldn't have been and she provoked, you know, the violence? What was her character? What were her motivations? I mean, this happens ad nauseum with black women victims of so-called private violence. Hmm. And so there's this distancing from the impact that this has on the entire community. Hmm. And the fact that we, we need to dismantle and to disrupt these systems of of patriarchy and anti-black misogyny and sexism that disproportionately victimize African-American women when it comes to these skyrocketing rates of gun homicide and and other forms of homicide that we know we suffer from. Why do you think that um, in general there's this um, sense of apathy regarding black people in Los Angeles? Is that, you know, just a larger symptom of of America as a whole? Or, you know, is that something specific with Los Angeles's culture from your perspective? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And 
I'm thinking specifically about the mayoral race and the fact that there was no action plan for African-American folks in L.A. City promulgated by the first black female mayoral candidate, successful mayoral candidate in history. And that struck me because, as you know, I mean, you were screaming as well. I mean, <laughs> what, what agenda do you have for the fact that black folks are perishing economically in our city? That we are the most hyper-segregated, the most unhoused, uh, the most unemployed and underemployed, the most incarcerated. I mean, if you look at reports that came out from the L.A. Black Workers Center that indicated that African-Americans with college degrees that are in the, the public and private sectors and so-called middle-class jobs, that our mobility is atrocious, mm -hmm. that white folks with high school diplomas have greater mobility, particularly when it comes to being in management, being supervisors, than African-American folks with college degrees. And South LA, of course, is the epicenter for that kind of disparity. And if we look at housing and the fact that so many of us are being displaced because this is the most unaffordable market in the entire country, that we have the lowest rates of home ownership nationally during this era, you know, 21st century, than during the Jim Crow era, than, than during the era of Brown v. Board. Um, you know, fewer African-Americans can afford single-family homes. And certainly if we look at your generation, uh, millennials to Gen Z, it's absolutely egregious. So our, our mobility has become extremely impacted by, obviously, the fallout from the pandemic. But prior to that, um, the fact that our levels of household wealth are abominable. You know, white folks now 25 to 30 times the wealth of African-Americans. And there has been no substantive call to action other than we know that there have been studies on reparations, that, that there's an, an, a report coming out about um, specific forms of redress you know, under the umbrella of reparations. But that's moving at a slow pace. And of course, we see that the public sentiment is steadfastly opposed to any kind of, of cash a remuneration to African-Americans um, experiencing the legacies of enslavement and, and Jim Crow and de facto segregation. So I think that the apathy around African-American communities and our circumstances is part and parcel of this national crisis and an epidemic of anti-black racism and white supremacy that we see. Hmm. Okay. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to share in terms of like, you know, how you would like to see the issues of black LA addressed or any tips about how we can maybe mobilize around these issues ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, continued mobilization with coalitions um, around the hyper-incarceration of youth and adults. I mean, certainly we've seen um, Justice LA taking the lead on that, you know, with other coalition partners. 
as far as uh, standing for black girls work is concerned um we not only as you know work with um, la city and la county but we also work within the la usd and we partner with affinity groups like students deserve for example um to try and ensure that the defunding of la school police uh, proceeds and that you know we continue to have um, programs and initiatives and other forms of redress you know for african-american students because our test scores are are abominable but because of the neglect you know because of uh, the depth of anti-black racism um the the rates with which african-american youth are going to college are inching up but still not where they need to be and there was like a recent report about the csu system for example which is supposed to be open and accessible to vulnerable communities and working class youth you know across ethnicity but uh that system is doing a disservice to african-american youth that you know you have more African-American youth who are dropping out of that system because they don't have the resources, uh, the financial aid, and and definitely not the academic support um, within the CSUs because there are not a lot of tenured black faculty and not a lot of um, African-American administrators. I mean, you know, you know this. All of those issues, I think, need to be addressed on a coalition level, and I feel that that there are some generative coalitions within LA that are black affirming, but it's just the Sisyphean task, really. You know, you got the boulder rolling it up and then it rolls back. And one thing I would like to underscore is that I really feel that it is rolled back for black queer youth Mm -hmm. because we're not seeing, in my mind, substantive support from community-based organizations for black queer youth and all of the risk factors that are imposed upon them, the challenges that they experience, and the erasure um, of their needs within school districts as well as communities and families. And that is, um, as, as you know, the fastest growing population within African-American communities that greater numbers of Gen Z black youth identify as queer and gender expansive than non-black youth. Okay, is there anything else um, that comes to mind or that you think is important about these topics? Well, I do want to shout out that we're having our annual Standing for Black Girls rally against rape culture and sexual violence, and that'll be on October 28th in Levert Park. Okay. And so we will have, yeah, youth speakers and um, adult partners, you know, talking about the experiences of black women and girl and queer survivors of sexual violence and the intractability, unfortunately, of, of rape culture in our communities and how to fight back against it. Like this episode? Leave a review and stay up to date on new episodes by subscribing to Slauson Girl Speaks and follow Slauson Girl on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook.